So Matthew 26, we're going to do verses 59, and then the first part of 63. And, and this will tie into the message, so don't worry, we'll, you'll see later. But Matthew 26. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. So we'll flip over to Hebrews 12 now. Verse 1. I'm just going to read the first six verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So now if you want to flip over to Ruth 1, I'll be reading through it and preaching as I go. It's a long section of verses, so I thought I'd break it up that way. Um, but before we start, when uh, I just want to let you guys know, when I'm reading through the Old Testament and I see the word Lord, or even God in all capitals, um, I say the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name in Exodus 3 that, that the Lord gave to Moses to explain, who was it that's sending me? He said, I'm Yahweh, the Lord that sent you. So, um, and you're to tell the people this too. And so that's... Just so you're not confused when I say Yahweh, if your Bible says Lord, um, that's what I'm doing. So, um, have any of you ever been children? I suspect you may have been at one point, maybe still are. Um, and if you were children, you probably had parents. And if you had good parents, and I know some of us didn't have good parents, but if you had good parents, they probably disciplined you for doing wrong. And at some point in your young life, you may have decided that what they were doing for you wasn't as good as what you could be doing for you. They punished you unjustly. And maybe if you strike out on your own and run away from home, you could do a little better. So what do you do? You pack your little bag, maybe put a little food in it, maybe a flashlight in a toy or a book, and you head out. You strike out on your own. But then you start to get cold, it starts to get dark, your food runs out, and you're thinking maybe the comfort of a warm bed and a nice meal isn't so bad after all. And even if your heart is still bitter at your parents for unjustly treating you the way they did, 
you head back home and you go into their arms for that comfort. But eventually we grow up. And we look back at what our parents did as they disciplined us. And we understand something. That what they were doing that we perceived as unjust, unfair, even mean, was actually love. And we see that our response to that love should have been repentance. Here in the book of Ruth, we have a story that's meant to teach us about God and also to teach us about ourselves. In this first chapter, we will see a, a family running away from God's discipline to seek their fortunes on their own. God will be working with his wayward child, Naomi, to turn her heart back to himself. And in the process, he'll bring a new child into his family, in Ruth. These two women in this chapter serve as contrasts. Um, Naomi is like us when we ran away from home as a child. She needs to be brought back by the discipline of the Lord for her own good, her own spiritual good. And Ruth shows us what it means to truly turn and cling to the Lord as she leaves behind everything in Moab and clings to Yahweh. And we will also see the response of God to his children as he protects them and works for their ultimate good. And I want to give you a statement to help you remember the sermon because um, it all relates to this one main idea. And it's this. Cling to King Jesus who alone truly feeds us. And I'll repeat that in just a minute. But if you want to write that down and just put Ruth 1 next to it, you might be able to recall what it is I'm going to go through today if you look back on it. Uh, but I just want to explain what that means. Cling, I think we know what clinging means, but don't let go. Cling to King. He's our ruler, our protector, and he provides for us. Cling to Jesus, who's our redeemer, and brings us to God by his death and resurrection. Who alone, nothing else on earth, can satisfy us, truly feeds us by giving himself to us and giving him, us his word and his spirit. And once again, the statement is, cling to King Jesus, who alone truly feeds us. So considering this, I have three points today. The first point is, Naomi needs to be emptied of her hope in the earthly things so that she can be turned to hope in God's spiritual blessings. And then Ruth shows us what it means to turn to the heavenly for satisfaction. And then the last point will be that Yahweh works to bless while silently bearing false accusations. So as we come to the first point, let's consider how Naomi needs to be entered, emptied of her hope in the earthly before her heart can be turned to the empty or the heavenly. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife's wife, Naomi, and the names of their two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The opening words of this book tell us that these events took place during the time of the Judges. And I don't know if you all recall the time of the judges as being a very good time, but 
Yeah, they, somebody I, I heard once said they were the best of times, it was the worst of times. Um, the cycle of the book of Judges is that the people sin against the Lord their God. He brings judgment upon them. They cry out for deliverance, and he brings a deliverer in the form of a judge. And there's peace and prosperity for a few more years until they fall back into sin. Basically, in those days, as they sinned over and over, part of what God brought to them was famine. Famine was a judgment from God to bring his people back to him in repentance. And this we see this in Deuteronomy 28 when God tells the people that he will bless them for their obedience and he will curse them for their disobedience, but he will bring them back. The time of the judges was a time of wickedness and rebellion, and the name Elimelech is ironic in this regard. It means, my God is king. Uh, here we have a name, my God is king in the time when there was no king in Israel, and this man whose, God is, whose name is God is king leaves God who is king to go to Moab. His response to the famine would have, would have been concerning Boaz more appropriate. If, it would have been more appropriate if he would have stayed and endured God's discipline. But instead, he thought he knew better than God who was chastising Israel for their disobedience. And instead they went to Moab, which Moab of all places was not a place Israelites should go. Moab was one of the nations that came from Lot and his daughters when they got them drunk because they were desperate for sons. And we see the Ammonites and the Moabites coming from that. And they were a wicked people, serving false gods, even performing human sacrifices. And the history of Moab and drawing Israel's hearts away from God is uh, pretty extensive. And it includes Solomon being drawn away to worship the false god Shemash because of his wives from Moab. And we see Moab is especially cursed, even above, say, Edom or Egypt in Deuteronomy 23, uh, where it says, starting in verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of Yahweh, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of Yahweh forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Maybe you remember that story. But Yahweh your God would not listen to Balaam, Instead, Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because Yahweh your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or prosperity all your days forever. And it's pretty clear here that Moab was a special people and place to be avoided for their wickedness and idolatry, and especially because of their cursed state through the treatment of the people of God when they came into the promised land. And yet, this family left Israel for this land, Moab. They left where God dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle. They left the place where God had provided through blood sacrifice a way to approach him and to worship him. They left a land that God had promised to bless and to protect. They chose to abandon God's presence and worship for the sake of filling their bellies. The family was committing a grievous error by leaving the fatherly discipline of God. It reminds me of uh, Esau when he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Hey, Jacob, I'm pretty hungry. I'm probably going to die of hunger if you don't give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, hey, would you just give me your birthright that's worth uh, everything that you could imagine in the heavenly new creation for the whole of stew? And Esau's like, sure, I'm hungry. Give it to me now. 
Um, it's amazing the choices we make as humans sometimes. And consider this. Elimelech's journey was kind of like a backwards exodus. You remember the people of Israel came out of a land of darkness, of sin and curse, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and into a land of blessing and promise. Right? But Elimelech left a land of blessing and promise to go to a land of darkness and curse in Moab. And this led to Elimelech's death. But through the death of Elimelech, Yahweh is working to empty Naomi of all the things that Moab could offer her. So we read in verse 3 here, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her husband and her two sons. Moab is emptied for Naomi by the death of all the males in her family. It's emptied of the hope of any offspring. We see later, Naomi's too old to have children and to, for her daughters-in-law to raise up offspring in the name of her sons and her husband. And um, the, 10 years they were there, and they were, they were barren, apparently. So she was left completely without any means of support in Moab, which means also Moab was emptied to her of food, which was the reason for their leaving in the first place, to fill the valleys. And so she faced a daunting prospect of scratching out a really meager existence among the Moabites with her daughters-in-law. And now we see, as we come to verse 6, there's a hint of the good news to come. And this book of Ruth has a wonderful end. The author of this book was a master storyteller. And uh, I'm not going to give you the end right now, but you should anticipate something good is going to happen. Um, but verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. As Naomi is left empty, she hears of Yahweh visiting his people and giving them food. Yahweh is working to cause Naomi to come back to the land of Israel. And there, she would be cared for, at least as people kept the law, because in the law was provision for widows and orphans and the sojourner, those in need, to glean at the edges of the, edges of the field during, during the harvest time so that they could get food for themselves. There she would be among a familiar people, and even if she died a widow, at least she would die in the land of her fathers. And we see that even after all seems lost, God will keep blessing. Even, even if she doesn't acknowledge this, but he doesn't bless her in the way anyone could have imagined would happen. One of the ways that we see her eventually being blessed is that he draws Ruth into the family of God and brings her even into the line of the Messiah, Jesus, which is not something we would ever expect a Moabite, of a Moabite. And there's a contrast being drawn in the picture, in the chapter here, between Naomi and Ruth. And so let's consider Ruth's response um, as she shows what it means to turn to the heavenly for satisfaction instead of the earthly. <clears throat> so in contrast to Naomi and Orpah, as we'll read shortly, Ruth was willing to forsake the comfort of her home in Moab to cling to that promise that she saw in the 
land of Israel and in Yahweh himself. And we see, we see she does not heed the urging of Naomi. Naomi's very strongly urging her daughters, like, go back, to go back to the land of Moab. Return. Um, read, reading from 8. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you find rest in the house each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I had sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear a son with him, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We see Ruth responding differently than Orpah. She clings to Naomi instead of returning, like Naomi had commanded them to do. Despite many of those commands to go and to return, those verbs are used, and they're imperatives, they're strong imperatives here. She's going to cling to Naomi despite that, no matter what. And the question is, why? Ruth would have been giving up comfort. She would have given up, been giving up a husband, a family, food, her mother's home, familiar people, familiar gods, by the way. Ruth would have been giving up all these things, at least temporarily. But in contrast to Naomi, who left Naomi to seek physical, sorry, in contrast to Naomi, who left Yahweh, <laughs> to seek physical comfort in Moab, Ruth leaves physical comfort in Moab to seek Yahweh. And look at her beautiful statement here to Naomi as we continue. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And listen to what Ruth responds, especially in the middle part with the people and the Lord, Yahweh. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And this is how it reads in the Hebrew. Your people, my people, your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so and more to me, if anything but death parts me from you. That was an, an oath she was taking upon her life that she would keep this word that she's speaking in the army. And we see here that somehow Ruth, as she uses the name Yahweh, has heard of Yahweh. In the 10 years she spent with the family of Naomi and Elimelech, she's picked up on his covenant name. And she knows enough to want to cling to him and to even invoke a curse upon herself if she breaks her oath. She has been brought to faith in Yahweh. Rather than leaving Naomi and seeking physical rest that would end in spiritual death, like Orpah who went back to her gods, Ruth pledges to cling to Naomi 
being willing even to suffer with her in widowhood. Ruth is seeking the loving kindness of Yahweh. And we'll see this later in chapter 2 when Boaz says as much, when he acknowledges that she has come to seek a refuge under the wings of Yahweh, he says in chapter 2. Um, but as we consider this, uh, let's read verse 18 here. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now, I don't know if any of us believers who had a family member that came to us and said, I have professed faith in Jesus Christ, if you would just say no more. I think I would hope we'd be overjoyed at this. Um, and it's interesting that the author points out she says no more. And we have to wonder at the state of her heart. And I think we will see the state of her heart as they come into Bethlehem. But as we consider this contrast between Naomi's response and Ruth's response, look how Naomi responds to her conversion and think about how God's providence is working in Naomi's life and she just doesn't see it yet. She will see it, but she doesn't see it yet. Ruth clings to the empty Naomi in hope of spiritual feeling, but Naomi only sees physical emptiness and death. And in the response of Ruth, uh, we see how God works in the hearts of those who he saves. She turns from everything she knew in Moab. Family, food, uh, gods, everything. For the, and the, for the prospect of clinging to an empty widow, but clinging also to Yahweh in that. We can see how uh, she would have re responded apart from God's grace, because we have a comparison there drawn for us too with Orpah. Orpah left. No problem. <laughs> what Naomi was saying made a lot of sense to Orpah. And it should, most of us would think it makes a lot of sense to us too, I would suspect. Christian, consider this grace of God towards sinners as he works in us to conform us to Christ. How often do we, like Naomi, seek satisfaction in such temporary and physical ways, earthly ways, uh, <laughs> And we don't esteem the heavenly blessings that we get in Jesus Christ as we ought to. Uh, the, the things we cling to, like money for security and happiness or peace, um, those things that God gives us, we cling to instead of to God who gives them to us. Even our health, which is such a hard thing to go through cancer or even watching your loved one die. Those things which are so terrible to us, do we respond to that with bitterness? with sorrow, without looking to God for comfort? Or do we look to God for comfort? Even as we endure these hardships here, we should know we can look to God for comfort because there's an inheritance coming to us that is far more glorious than anything we could ever imagine. And just as a couple diagnostic questions to help us think about ourselves, and I hope it connects with you, but it connects a bit with me. Um, uh, and I suspect some of us might be like me, I don't know. What brings you more joy? Is worshiping with God's God with God's people on a Sunday bringing more joy? Or does watching your favorite team win the Super Bowl bring more joy? I have to admit, sometimes the team winning the Super Bowl can bring me more joy. What satisfies you more? Studying the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or watching the newest episode of your favorite TV show? on a Monday night. Brothers and sisters, because of our sinful hearts, we all tend, tend to seek contentment 
in the wrong things. And it's only by God's grace that we love him at all. It says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Because of this, we need to continually be shown the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are many wonderful ways that he works to save and to sanctify us. And we have this Savior who lowered himself to the status of a slave. The King of glory came. The King of glory came as a slave, as a servant, and was slain upon a cross for the sake of those who he came to redeem, who hated him. What a glorious thing we have in that. And that inheritance that he worked to deserve, he gives to us by faith, as we believe in his work for our salvation. All oh, those things we can contemplate that should turn help to turn our eyes from those sorrows, from those disciplines, even from the successes that we have here on earth, how they should pale in comparison to the glory of that inheritance that Jesus Christ brings to us. His grace also sanctifies those like Naomi. We, who are like Naomi, who turn from God so easily for the things of this world. Thank God for his grace, may I just say. And speaking of his grace, we're going to move to point three and consider the character of God as he patiently bears with Naomi. We see Naomi's complaint to Orpah and Ruth um, as Yahweh works to bless while silently bearing false accusations. And in verse 13, to Orpah and Ruth, Naomi says, The hand of Yahweh, the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then that manifests her attitude in this situation. And she sees this, uh, the statement's kind of like this, God and all the hosts of God are arrayed against her in battle, basically. That's kind of that idea. She, she addresses the women now as we come to verse 19, too, and I bring verse 13 together with, with this after verse 19 to show you how she perceives her God. So to the women, uh, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred before uh, because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, by the way. Call me Mara, which means bitter, by the way. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went, I went away full. But Yahweh brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She sees his work as being bitter, as emptying her, as calamity as testifying against her. She does not see God, who is her loving Heavenly Father, but as he is, as if he were a formidable adversary. And she publicly brings these accusations against him in front of the women here. And by the way, this is going to come back up at the end of the book, too. Uh, this, this author really, whoever wrote the book of Ruth did it. And, and the, the way that God, the Holy Spirit, did Everything that he did in this book is amazing to see. Um, so keep that in mind, that the beginning of the book points to the end of the book. Um, so she certainly doesn't consider Yahweh as worth all the comforts this world could offer, does she? And she sees only her lack of food and support, and she responds by becoming bitter. But 
we saw that Yahweh had emptied Moab of food for Naomi, of offspring for Naomi, in order to begin to return her to Israel to do something with her. He did it for a reason. He does those things for a reason. He begins to return her spiritually by first returning her physically to the land and through his provision of food, which we saw in verse 6, that he brought, he visited his people and brought food to the land. We see him returning her to Bethlehem as she followed her belly back where her belly had, when before her belly had led her away. Um, at least in Israel, there were the, the, the law was written so that the widows and orphans and the sojourner would have support. Wasn't the case in Moab. We can see the Lord bringing her back because of her inclinations to go after those physical comforts. And Israel was much better for Naomi than in Moab. God is truly going to provide for his bitter daughter, though, who has lost all faith in him, as far as we can tell. And for this new convert who came from a cursed people, as much, probably most of us are not Jewish, are not considered part of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. And uh, Moabites were certainly, like us, from a people that were not in the commonwealth of Israel. In Naomi's mind, is Naomi's mind on the mysterious working of God who caused her such grief, but who did so to bless her? No. Does she remember that she was seeking rest in Moab and not in the land of promised rest? Does she see her sin? No. And we can see she has this story half right. Her mind is on God's discipline and his judgment, but not on his loving kindness. And there's a rich word in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, it's hesed, but you have to say it with some spit in the back of your throat. <laughs> but it means God's loving kindness, his mercy, his compassion. It's everything he is to his covenant people as he protects them and keeps them in his love. So she gets the idea that God disciplines her, but she doesn't see his hesed to her. She gets the idea that he's become her adversary, bringing down trouble upon her. She does not see his loving kindness, who lovingly disciplines her. She sees only the emptiness and bitterness, not the work of God on her behalf. So she only sees half of God, only the judgment, not the fatherly care. And isn't this something that is common to humans, to God's people today even. Remember that child who ran away from his parents. Don't we too question God's love toward us when he sends us things that we don't like? Or maybe even more accurately, don't we just ignore God altogether when those things happen to us and turn wherever else we can find for comfort? So often that's the case. You see, we all tend to focus on our own and God gave us this book of Ruth, as well as the rest of the scriptures, to show us something. He works to redeem sinners and to sanctify them. He has not changed since the time of Ruth. Our God does not change. He is our God, too. And the basic nature of people hasn't changed either. Our hearts from birth are naturally curved inward into ourselves so that we love ourselves far more than we could ever love another, let alone loving God. And even as those whom God has graciously saved in Jesus Christ, we still need his loving discipline to strengthen our faith in him. 
and to turn us from faith in ourselves. In spite of the infinite grace of God in redeeming us from sin, we still fail to believe that everything God sends us is for our good and his glory. The glory of God in the face of Christ that shows us the acts for our ultimate good is hidden by our tendency to think we know better than God what's good for us. And this is why we needed to hear what the apostle said in Hebrews. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. In our fallen condition, we need to be reminded that God is working all things for our good and his glory. Even things that don't feel good at the moment. This is part of how wondrous his grace and his glory is, is all these aspects of how he works in us are brought together for our good, ultimately, as we're conformed to Christ. And we can look at Christ and see those things and be encouraged. So, here in the book of Ruth, we're coming to the end, and we see something about Yahweh's response to Naomi. And this is fascinating, um, as we see him being accused, but what does he do? What is Yahweh's response to Naomi? Verse 19 again, and then we're going to read through 22 at the end of the chapter, which is where we see something of Yahweh's response. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth and Moabite with her, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Where's Yahweh's response to these accusations? Yahweh is silent as Naomi brings her charges against him. But in silence, he works to bring blessing to Naomi and to Ruth and to Israel. He has emptied Naomi of all that she could cling to beside them. He has retrieved her from a cursed land of Moab and brought her back to Israel. He's provided food for her and for Ruth. And he has brought Ruth the Moabite to her, who, as we will see, will be the means of her having an offspring. And he remains silent in the face of Naomi's accusations. And as we conclude, consider how Yahweh has responded to Naomi with loving kindness in his discipline. He has humbled her. He has returned her from Moab. He has supplied food for her in Bethlehem. And as the author has set us up to expect, he's prepared a way for her to have offspring to raise up the name of her dead husband and sons again in the land. And we see Jesus, God in human flesh, silent in the face of the accusations of those he came to save taking upon himself the punishment that they deserved. 
and bestowing on us who believe in him a glorious inheritance that he worked to deserve. We who are God's children often respond to his discipline, like Naomi, turning to find solace in money or health or relationships or entertainment, any number of things besides looking at Jesus Christ. We want to cling to those things that cannot bring us ultimate joy. But, like he did with Ruth, he turns our hearts from those things and gives himself to us by his word and by his spirit. You who are right now like Ruth, before she was converted, a cursed Moabite who had no knowledge of God and was without hope in the world, turn from your sin and cling to Jesus Christ. He's really the only satisfaction you can ever find truly. The only Son of God became man and lived perfectly, bled and died and was raised to redeem a people for himself. And us, we're like Naomi, who turn away from God to seek fulfillment in those things which cannot fulfill us. Return to your Heavenly Father. Return as he returned Naomi. And cling to King Jesus who alone truly feeds us.